today, uh, I don't know, I don't know what was going on. This whole week has been a rough week with this message. It is not at all what I intended to share with you today. Um, it has been a, it has been a chore to get the message ready. And then this mor- morning from the moment I woke up, I've been attacked spiritually. Um, and, and I don't know that I've ever, I, I don't know that I've ever needed the sermon for myself more than today because I lived out this week and today what I'm about to share with you. And I don't know who's here that needs to hear this or who's on on Facebook that needs to hear it, but somebody does. And there's been spiritual warfare over this sermon today. So just pray with me and for me as we go through this. Um, in World War II, for whatever reason, I've been reading all these quotes. I hadn't been reading about World War II so much, but I've been reading all these quotes in different devotionals. And uh, I read, I came across a guy named Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl lived through, he, he survived the Nazi uh, concentration camps. He became a counselor. He wrote numerous books uh, on the meaning of life. He discovered something in the middle of the concentration camps. He said, the people who had hope lived longer than the people who had no hope in the concentration camps. So when he comes out, he actually writes a book about the meaning of life. And he said, if you discover the meaning of life, you will live longer. You will live more fulfilled uh, than, in, than people who don't. Here's what he said about the, the gas chambers in the concentration camps. Here's a quote. I am absolutely convinced that the gas chambers were ultimately prepared, not in some ministry or other in Berlin. So what he's saying is the idea for the gas chambers didn't come from from the Department of Defense, didn't come from Hitler himself necessarily. Here's what he believes. But rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. A nihilist is someone who believes there is no meaning to life. And so he said these people who believe that that life is meaningless came up with the idea of a gas chamber because if, if they don't believe your life means anything, it doesn't mean anything if they kill you. They are going to remain in power. So here's what he's saying. He's saying that the the gas chambers started as an idea in someone's mind. And eventually those ideas were acted upon. And in the case of Nazi Germany, millions of people died because of the ideas of the gas chambers. So my question today is, where'd they get that idea? Did it come from God? Absolutely not. It came from the enemy of God. Because God declares you have worth. God declares, we just sang about it, you have so much worth that Jesus died on the cross. That's how much you to him. So that idea of the gas chamber could not have come from God. Uh, so here's what I want you to, to understand. Ideas have consequences that bless or destroy. Whatever you think about eventually determines your behavior. So your behavior, good or bad, starts in your mind. If you are focused solely on God, what kind of behavior will you produce? You will reflect God-like character. You will make God-like decisions. You will respond to people in a way that God responds to people. But if your focus is not on God, if your focus is on the things of the world, what kind of behavior are you going to produce? It's not of God. You don't get godly behavior by focusing on the things of the world. You only get God-like behavior, godly behavior by focusing, worshiping, spending time in the presence of God. And, And the Bible talks about this. Lots of places it talks about that our ideas, our concepts have consequences. And here's one of the things that it it says in Romans chapter 15, verse four, Paul is writing to a group of people in Rome who are Christ followers, who if they say Jesus is Lord out loud in public, they could be killed for that because the Romans declared Caesar is Lord. There's a competing agenda going on here. One idea says Jesus is Lord. One idea says Caesar is Lord. He's writing to the people who believe Jesus is Lord when Caesar is on the throne. And he says this, for whatever was written whatever is in this bible all right this is my mom's bible it's her i'm not changing it for you or anybody else if you think it's too frilly too bad 
He's saying what was written in this Bible was written for a purpose. And then he tells us the purpose. It was written in former days, was written for our instruction. This Bible is, is a manual that shows you how to live in a world that doesn't acknowledge Jesus as Lord. It's for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Viktor Frankl discovered hope in the Nazi concentration camps. It allowed him to survive and others to survive. But the Bible says if you're in the Christian life and you want to have hope, you must endure whatever circumstances you're in and be encouraged by the scriptures. That means if you're a Christ follower and you're discouraged today, either you are not simply enduring your circumstances that you find yourself in and or you're not being encouraged by the scriptures because the word of God says you can be encouraged through the scriptures and you can have hope. If you have no hope today, it means you're not focusing on God, you're focusing on something else. Um, and so therefore, where'd the idea of hope come from? The idea of hope comes from God. If you're discouraged, where did that idea come from? Where'd you get that idea? It was not God. Now in the scriptures, I've told you before, if you see the word therefore, you need to know what it's there for. So I got another statement for you today. The, the word therefore appears 1,039 times in the New American Standard Version of the Bible. And so I wanted you to understand what therefore means. Therefore means that what follows comes from somewhere. That's pretty deep, right? That's real deep. Casey, would that work in theology class? I don't, I don't think I would get a good grade for that. Here's what I mean. Let me give you an example. Romans 5.1, the people, written to the people who, who could die for saying Jesus is the Lord. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, justified is a term that means declared not guilty. It's a legal term. I heard this when I was a kid. It stuck with me my whole life. It was somebody said, when you're justified, when you come before God and, and, and you ask him to forgive your sins and lead your life, you are justified. It is just as if I'd never sinned. Nothing I did qualified for that. Jesus, God just declares, you've never sinned through the basis of my son. His blood covers you and, and washes you clean. So he says, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to get peace with God is through Jesus Christ. And, and you've probably heard me pray this from this stage. You've probably heard me pray this. If, if you've gone through a difficult time, one of the things I pray over and over is scripture is, is uh, Philippians chapter four. I always pray for you that the peace of God that, so will, that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So when I hear that you're going through a difficult time, I immediately start praying, God, give them the peace of God that surpasses has all understanding to guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Some of you, though, have never experienced the peace of God, and there's, there's a reason. You don't get the peace of God until you have peace with God. You have to be justified through faith in Jesus Christ before you get hope. So you have to be adopted into his family. The peace of God is only offered to those who have peace with God. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. You have to reconcile to him and then he offers you the peace of God. So there, if you don't have the peace of God today, if you've never had the peace of God, it's either you've not been adopted into his family or you've wandered away like the prodigal son and you are far from God and you wouldn't know the father if you saw him right at the moment. You have to come back to God. So either you've got to ask God to adopt you, that's first, or if you're far away from God, you've got to repent and come back to God like the prodigal son. And the first time the father saw the son, he ran to him and welcomed him back. My son who was dead is now alive. You only get the peace of God after you have peace with God. Make sense? Here's another one, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are feeling condemned today, where'd you get that idea? Did it come from your heavenly father? 
Your heavenly father said there's no condemnation. If it didn't come from him, where did it come from? It came from your enemy, his enemy, the devil. Here's another one. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. If you are anxious about tomorrow and you're a Christ follower, did that idea come from your heavenly father? No, where'd you get that idea? It wasn't from God. It was from looking at something else in God's place. It came from your enemy, his enemy, the devil. There is so much power in the therefores of the Bible. But if you want to live in the power of these therefores, your mind has to be gripped with what is in here. His ideas have consequences just like the world's ideas have consequences. So I want us to bring all of our ideas under the authority of God's word. So what that means is you come, you step under. So the umbrella represents God's word. Out here is, is, is being under the authority of anything other than God. You have to choose to be under the un authority of God's umbrella. And, and even if you were to walk out and there's a huge rainstorm, it's going to protect most of you. You're still going to have some things splash on you. When you go through things in life, you're going to go through stuff in life. But if you're under the authority of God, God says, I will give you my power to deal with whatever that you are suffering through. You see, we're in a war and the war is in our minds and we're losing the battle of our minds because we believe all of this stuff out here. We step out from under God's authority and we believe stuff. People tell us stuff, we latch onto it. It is not from God, it is not truth. In order to, to have the mind of Christ, you've gotta be under the authority of Christ. You have to step back under here. Our minds are filled with trash because we believe the lies out there. So how do we deal with it? The Bible, God's word, truth tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses four and five. Here's what he says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. All right, I'm gonna come back to those two little words in, in yellow and I'm gonna ask you to say them out loud. I'm giving you warning so you can get revved up. Start your engine, get revved up, all right? First service, it took me eight minutes to get them going. We're not gonna, we don't have eight minutes, all right. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to do what? Uh, no, no, you need to understand. You don't say the word destroy like destroy. Destroy. All right, you ready? Um, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to do what? Destroy. Thank you. It's all in the setup, isn't it? I need to set up better in the first service. Need to start earlier. All right, now there's gonna be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven words you're gonna say in a minute. Now that your mouth is already moving, um, you, you don't get to talk to your neighbor, we're gonna talk, okay, you're gonna read it when I get there. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of, jo of God, and we do what? No, 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 read the next words. Sorry, the setup was bad. Don't, don't go back to destroy right now. Remember destroy, we'll come back, but now we're on the next slide, all right? It's not yellow, is it? See, just count back. Christ, obey to, captive, thought, every. Take. We're going to start with take. All right. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, and we do what? No wonder they didn't read that in the first service. I didn't realize it wasn't highlighted until right now. <clears throat> what do we do to, to strongholds with God's help? not coexist, not ignore, we destroy with God's weapons. That word destroy, that's not very nice. It's not civilized. Why do we have to destroy a stronghold? Is what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross, was that civilized? 
Was that nice? Was it justice? The beatings, the crown of thorns, the whippings on his back, the hitting him in the face, the spitting on him, the carrying of the cross, the the spear through his side. That's what sin, that's what strongholds do to you and me and Jesus Christ died to destroy them, not to coexist with them, not to rub elbows with them. My dad um, was in World War II. He was in the Naval Seabees. And when he was deployed, the war had already started and it was in the South Pacific and he went to Guadalcanal. And um, dad told me that when they told them they were going, that, that we were, that Guadalcanal was under our control. Dad didn't know what that meant as a young man, but he found out what that meant. What that meant was we had more um, soldiers on, the, on the, the island than the Japanese did, but there were strongholds. There were pockets of resistance and those pockets of resistance were deadly. So dad said um, there were many times, you know, he would be in his tent and they would hear the air raid sirens and the Japanese bombers are coming over bombing and dad would run and jump in the foxhole. Dad actually literally came to Christ in a foxhole because uh, he thought he was going to die. And he said, I better prepare to meet my maker because this is my last night. Dad said that, that you couldn't, um, you, the, the officers were not allowed to wear their caps that denoted they were officers or uniforms that showed they were officers. You were not allowed to salute an officer because the enemies, the strongholds, the enemies uh, who were resisting them would kill them. So dad said they would be in the mess, uh, in the line for the mess tent to get their meal and, and people would just start falling out dead because there were snipers shooting at them. And one time he said that, that they actually had to go and find the strongholds and destroy the strongholds. And in this one instance, it took them weeks to find this one sniper. It was a woman, incredibly deadly woman, who had stripped herself naked, painted her the same color as the tree so that she would not be discovered, so that she could kill as many enemy as possible. You do not coexist with strongholds. So what's a stronghold spiritually? A stronghold is a lie that I believe. It's a lie that I believe. It might be that God doesn't love me, According to what Jesus did on the cross, does, does God love you? So if you ever hear whispered, God doesn't love you, that did not come from your heavenly father. It's a lie. Um, the lie might be, well, I know better than God what will make me happy. That's a lie from hell. The lie might be, it's no big deal to disobey God. That's a lie from hell. The lie might be, my, worth, my life is worthless. Anybody ever been told you're worthless or felt worthless? That's a lie from the pit of hell. No one loves me. Anyone felt unlovable? Lie from hell. I can't be used because of my past. Anyone feel that one? Been told that one? Lie from hell. It's a stronghold that you believe. Anything I believe that's a lie is called a spiritual stronghold and strongholds need to be destroyed. How do you do it? With the truth of God's word. You get under the authority of God's word and you take thoughts captive. You, you, you throw a truth bomb. This is truth. And if, if what you're being told, if what you're thinking in your mind is you take it through the filter of God's word. And if it doesn't line up with God's word, you throw it out. It's garbage because truth, God's love letter to you says you're valuable. You have worth and God can always redeem your past. Now the word in Greek that says, um, to, to destroy strongholds actually means to conquer, literally to conquer, to blow them up, to, to obliterate them. And the word that we get, um, the Greek word that, phrase that we get, take every thought captive, actually means, literally means to, t- to take into submission, to make it obey Christ. So, true confession. 
Do your thoughts ever disobey you? Do they rebel? My mind often has a mind of its own. Yesterday morning, I got up early. I was studying for this message. I just have this routine I go through. So I study on Friday mornings. I study on Saturday mornings. I get up and study on Sunday mornings so that I'm ready to, to share this message with you. Well, my brother's in town because we had Hannah's uh, graduation celebration yesterday. So I get up five o'clock and I'm studying and I didn't want to study. My mind did not want to study because my brother and I were going to play golf. I hadn't played golf with my brother in 23 years and I was excited to go play golf with my brother. We got out there and it got hot and we got hungry and my brother said, oh dude, we need to go get something to eat. About the time Janie texts me and says, hey, we're having hot dogs, chili dogs for lunch. If you want something other than chili dogs, you need to go get it. And so I told my brother, he said, we are not eating hot dogs for lunch. Let's go get something good. So we went and ate steak and it was good. We had sauteed mushrooms and we had fried mushrooms and it was good. And this whole time I'm thinking, man, I need some bluebell because man, bluebell is like, like my deal. And, and when I have bluebell, I, it's either vanilla or sometimes I'll do Rocky Road. Janie does Rocky Road and I like the marshmallows and us, but usually it's vanilla, but I have to put caramel on top of it. My family calls me an elf, you know, the, the movie Buddy the Elf. Because the four food groups are candy, candy cane, candy corn, and syrup. Well, I could live on that stuff. And so I eat my bluebell almost every night, and I put caramel on top of it. And then if I really need more sugar, I'll crumple up Oreos, and I'll mix it all in there. And then I'll let it melt a little bit, and I just, ah, oh, dude, and it is good. Anybody getting hungry right now? Anybody thinking about destroying strongholds while I'm talking to you about my bluebell? Ah, oh, I'm messing with your mind, which is exactly what Satan does, which is what happens when you try to rub up next to a stronghold instead of destroy it. Satan uses it to get your focus off of God onto anything else. It doesn't matter. Just don't let him listen to God. Don't get under his authority. When I need to ponder, my mind wants to wander. When I need to pray, my mind drifts away, right? Well, you have a choice. You decide what goes in your mind. You have a will, and part of your will is to bring your mind into order. And there's a lot of people that, that are ineffective at life. They, are, they fail at life. They hate life because they've never learned to deal with the battle in their mind. And I want to tell you how to deal with that today. So I'm going to talk to you about temptation, what, this, what the enemy uses over and over to defeat us. It starts with desire. Now, desire itself is not, nothing wrong. You remember when Jesus was tempted, he was tempted to turn stones into bread because Jesus hadn't eaten in 40 days. The desire, the hunger was not a sin, but here's what Satan does. He tries to take a routine desire and turn it into a runaway desire. It becomes the most important thing you're thinking of. It becomes destructive. And how many of you, uh, how many of you have fireplaces? Let me see your hands. You got a fireplace in your house? All right, how many of you that have fireplaces or if you've ever had a fireplace, how many of you started a fire in the middle of your living room carpet? Anyone? You, you wouldn't still be with us. You would have creatively removed yourself from the gene pool. So never mind. Um, they wouldn't be with us. Anybody take your favorite couch and scoop some coals from the fireplace onto your couch? Anybody do that? No. Fire in a fireplace warms the house. Fire outside of the fireplace destroys things. Fire on a cooking stove can cook a great meal. Fire off the cooking stove anywhere else destroys things. 
desires, God-given desires are not bad until they're number one and they run out of control, until a routine desire becomes a runaway desire and it is number one in your life. Satan gets you to focus on a desire, a good desire, nothing wrong with the desire. He gets you to focus on it and put it in number one. For example, often um, you're tempted to think or, or you think, I want to be loved by somebody else. There's nothing wrong with that unless you will do anything to be loved by someone else. Then you've moved that desire up first. So, so temptation is, it, it takes a, a legitimate desire and tries to meet that desire in an illegitimate way. So he gets you to focus on desire. Second thing, he gets you to doubt God. You begin to doubt that God loves you. You begin to doubt God's word. Did God really say don't have sex outside of marriage? Is that what, is that? God, God's not with the program if he said that. Did God really say forgive the person instead of get even with them? Because if God said that, you, you, you lose all the power if you forgive them. Did God really say that? Did God really say it's more blessed to give than to receive? Because you won't have enough for you if you give stuff away. Did God really say that? And he plants these little seeds of doubt. It's what he did with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were in paradise. They were in the perfect situation. Paradise, no clothes and no kids. How do you mess that up? You take your eyes off of God and Satan comes along and says, hey, see that tree over there? God knows if you eat of that tree, you will be just like him. God's keeping something from you. So what, do you, what, what becomes the focus of your attention? It's whatever it is that God's keeping from you. <laughs> God's rules aren't for your benefit. God's rules are to restrict you. He's getting you to doubt that God loves you. So desire and then doubt. Third one is deception. See, at this point, he doesn't need you to doubt. He needs you to buy the lie. Satan replaces truth, God's truth with lies. So he says, you will not die if you eat of this fruit. What had God just said to them? If you eat of this fruit, you will. Somebody's lying, somebody's telling the truth. Satan says, you will not die. No one will ever know. You deserve this. And in reality, what had God said? God gave them thousands of trees from which to eat. How many did he say you can't eat of this? One. And what did man do? He stood right next to the one he couldn't have. What are you doing? I'm looking at what I can't have. Why? Because I'm an idiot. <laughs> Teenagers, your parents say you can't date this certain person. What do you do? You obsess over that person. My parents can't possibly know how much I love him. Oh, please. We obsess over the thing we can't have instead of looking at all of the things that God says you can have. And it happens every day. It happens in churches. It happens outside of churches. Do you know the secret to being a successful fisherman? It's having the right bait. Here's my favorite bait. I got a picture of it. Now, my kids came to the early service, so I can't ask them. But this is a Berkeley Power Worm 7-inch, and it's a specific color that I've used more than any other bait, and I've caught more fish on this bait than any other bait. In fact, I had a conversation with Chase the other day uh, in their front yard about which baits, and, and he said, hey, did you see the video of my mom catching bass? And I said, dude, she caught a huge bass. I said, did your mom fish? And he goes, no. 
But she caught this massive bass. I said, what did you use? And he said, a 10-inch black worm. I said, why did you use a 10-inch black worm? He said, because a few weeks ago, I had a client, and he caught a massive bass. And I thought, well, if he can catch that on a 10-inch worm, surely my mama can. So he throws it out. she throws it out there, catches a huge bass. I mean, this is not a difficult thing. I have a rule. If I'm in a boat with somebody, and this has happened to me before. I've been in a boat. I've fished all around uh, Palestine and, and, and East Texas. I've been on a boat with a friend of mine. He's on the front. He's catching fish. My rule is if he catches three fish and I'm at zero, I'm using whatever he's using. I have stood, no lie, I've stood next to one of my best friends who's a pastor. We were at a private lake. It's about a 50-acre lake um, out near Tennessee Colony, and we were fishing, and, and I am as God is my witness. We're standing there, and I take this bait, and I chunk it, and, and the first fish I catch, he's standing right, I'm not kidding, he's standing right next to me. I catch a three-and-a-half-pound bass. I reel it in, let it go. I cast out again, four-pound bass, Cast again, 4.5. The last one I caught was five pounds. And my buddy is actually going, dude, give me your bait. And he's pushing me out of the way, trying to throw exactly where I'm throwing because he's like, I want to share the love, right? This is not a difficult concept. You have to have the right bait. Do you know what kind of bait Satan uses against you? Whatever works. And he uses it again and again, and again, it could be something that happened 20, 30, 40. I know, I know folks who are still reliving things from 50 years ago that their mom and dad said. And, and all Satan does is he waits until you're ripe and he throws that out there and you immediately become angry or, or depressed or think you're worthless. He uses the bait that works on you. Now, if... If the, if the bass knew there was a hook in my little blue fleck Berkeley power bait, would he eat it? No. In some ways, I think fish are smarter than us because we can't blame Satan deception. This is self-deception. We know there's a hook there. We've been hooked before, but we say, oh, I can handle it. Not this time. Nobody's going to know. I mean, this, this, to me, I was thinking about this. This is like the guy or girl. This is like the people who flirt with somebody the opposite sex at the office. How stupid is that? You're married. They're married. To begin flirting? That's just dumb. It's, it's going to end badly. I'll be careful. No, you're being deceived. There's a hook. There's always a hook in temptation. And when you take that, when you begin nibbling and saying, I can handle it, you eventually take that bait and it leads to the last step. You're defeated. This is where you disobey God. Satan smiles and puts that bait away and says, I'll wait until an opportune time to catch them again and discredit their walk with Christ. So you move from desire to doubting God's word to deception to disobedience and then you're defeated. So write this down. Whatever I flirt with, I'll fall for. It could be a cupcake. For me, it's bluebell. Y'all see this? See this right here? I don't have a beer belly. I have a blue belly. <laughs> this is bluebell. Because if there's bluebell in my freezer, I'm eating it. And my wife loves me, and she, if I run out of bluebells, she'll buy me. She won't even ask me. She'll just buy me something. I'm like, oh, baby, I'm trying to lose weight. I work out four to five times a week, and I have a blue belly. 
because I cannot resist. If it's in my freezer, I'm going to eat it. And if I don't have any in my freezer, there have been times around 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, I'll go to Walmart with all the crazy people and get me some Bluebell. So if I flirt with Bluebell, I'm going to lose. I'm going to fall for Bluebell. You're free to choose anything you want to do in life. But you're not free from the consequences of that choice. You see, you can't choose the behavior and not choose the consequence. That's a lie from hell. The moment you choose, you are bound to that and you are no longer free. James, the half-brother of Jesus, describes temptation this way in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Temptation comes from our own desires. Desires are not bad unless they're runaway desires, which entice us and drag us away, just like the bait. He knows what, what's going to drag you away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. When sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. Death is the ex exact opposite of living, and it happens because you chose to go down a path that leads to destruction and death. <laughs> Isn't it true that your greatest regrets did not happen when you were under the authority of God? Your greatest regrets happened when you turned your back on God's authority and you stepped out here. Isn't that true? <laughs> so I asked you earlier to, talk, to think about it, whatever it is. Um... Max Licato did a devotional and, and he talks about it and I want to read this to you. It troubles you. Whatever you were talking about earlier, whatever you prayed to God about earlier, it fatigues you, shames you. It is the disease you can't heal, the job you can't stomach, the marriage you can't fix, the rage you can't tame. Whatever it is, it hurts. Now, time out. Where did it come from? Where did where'd you get the idea that it was in charge, that it was most important? It did not come from your heavenly father. Back to the devotional. It looms over your life. Two towering letters, tall and defiant, it. They march like Frankenstein's monster, each step a thud, each thud an earthquake. Clomp, 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 it, it, it. I think about the T-Rex the, the in, in uh, Jurassic Park when he steps, thud, thud, thud. It is everywhere. Look out, here it comes. I can't take it anymore. It overshadows and intimidates everyone. Everyone, that is, except the one who takes it to Jesus under his authority. Like the Roman soldier, he was a centurion. That means he had a hundred men under his authority. He held unquestioned authority over those men. That's not unusual. It's, it's why the Roman army worked. What's unusual is this man who had authority over a hundred other men loved his servant. That's really unusual. And look what happens. Matthew chapter eight, verse six. Lord, my servant is at home and in such terrible pain that he can't even move. I will go and heal him, Jesus said. Now, what was impressive about that man's prayer? He literally says, my servant is at home in such terrible pain he can't even move. Tell me what's impressive about that prayer. Is there anything impressive? Nope. Dude stated the fact, but he took it to Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus immediately responds because he responds when you take it to him. And Jesus says, I'll go heal him. But, but the soldier stops him. Look what happens. The officer said, Lord, I'm not good enough for you to come, under, uh, come into my house. Just give the order and my servant will get well. I have 
Officers who give orders to me, I have soldiers who take orders from me. I say to one of them, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. I can say to my servant, do this, and he will do this. See, the, the centurion understood authority. He was under authority. He had people under authority uh, who were under his authority. His superiors gave him orders. He obeyed them. He gave orders to those under him, and they obeyed them. This was not a difficult concept. The centurion knew authority when he saw it, and he looked at Jesus, and he says, you have authority that's not of this world. Verse 8, or Matthew 8, verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he was so surprised, another translation says astonished. There's only a couple of times Jesus was astonished. It's when people showed radical faith. He was so surprised that he turned and said to the crowd following him, I tell you that in all Israel, I've never found anyone with this much faith. That Jesus said to the officer, you may go home now. Your faith has made it happen. The centurion's confidence in Jesus was so deep. He said, Jesus, you don't even have to be in the same room. You don't even have to be in the same zip code. You have so much authority. If you speak, it will be changed. He understood Jesus' authority. And Jesus' response was almost like, finally, someone understands my authority. And my question is, do you? Do you really understand Jesus' authority? Because what you do next... What you do with it reveals to everyone around you whether you understand Jesus' authority or not. So let me explain it to you real quickly. Jesus has all authority. How much authority? Look what he says. We're going to read some quotes in a minute. But this is from Hebrews chapter 1. He sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. Philippians 2.9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. The Roman government tried to intimidate him. False religion tried to silence him. Uh, the devil tried to kill him. And in Acts chapter 2, we're told that even death was no match for Jesus. And then Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2 that Jesus disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So Jesus wasn't kidding when he said words from his mouth. Here it is. Matthew 28, 18, all authority, how much authority? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew eleven twenty seven. all things, how many things? All things, all of it has been handed over to me by my father. That includes Satan. Satan must obey Jesus. He has power over Satan and Satan knows it and he hates it. Prayers offered in the name of Jesus have divine power to destroy strongholds in your life, not damage, not hampered, destroy. Here's what Max Licato said about it. Prayer falls on strongholds like lit matches on a grass hut. I like that. Now, he's going to tell us about, I'm going to read this to you. He's, he's going to tell you about a scene where the devil is there and listen to what he says. The devil fears prayer. Imagine this scene. He sat in the back of the room during a strategy session. A dozen demons had gathered to hear a report on the life of a particularly stalwart saint. So someone who is a fully devoted follower of Christ, they don't like it, they're having this report about it. He won't stumble, grouse the demon responsible for his demise. No matter what I do, he will not turn his back on God. So all of this council of demons began to offer suggestions. Take his purity, one said. I tried, replied the fiend, but he is too moral. Take his health, urged another. I did, but he refused to grumble or complain. Take his belongings. Are you kidding? I've stripped the man of every penny and possession, yet he still rejoices in his Savior. For a few moments, no one spoke a word. Finally, from the back of the room came a low, measured voice of Satan himself. 
The entire council turned as the fallen angel rose to his feet. His pale face was all but hidden by the hood. A long cape covered his body. His, he raised his bony hand and he made the point, it's not enough to take his purity. It's not enough to take his health. It's not enough to take his belongings. You must take what matters most. And all the demons said, what's that? You must take his prayer. You must take his connection with God. You must get him out from underneath the authority of God because then it has all power. We have power for those who are not connected to God. Prayer slaps handcuffs on Satan. On Satan. It takes it from his domain, puts it back under Jesus and says, God, you have all power. <laughs> Prayer says God can handle it. Since God can handle it, I'm not going to stress over it. And when we pray in the name of Jesus, we come into our father's house. I want you to see what it says in Hebrews 10, 21 about our father's house. The therefore is actually back in verse 19, but I'm going to put it in. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, in case you don't know who that is, that's Jesus, who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully ready to trust him. Take it to Jesus. He will pray to his father about it. Locato said, there are those who say prayer changes things. I agree, but only partially. Prayer changes it because we appeal to the highest known power, Jesus Christ. You can pray all you want to out here to whatever power you want to, but there's only one who's conquered death in the grave. His name is Jesus Christ. Your higher power has a name, Jesus. You don't get well. It does not get taken care of until you bring it to the highest power. Prayer changes us because we appeal to the highest power. So mark it down. It will not have the last word. Jesus will. Look at Ephesians 1, 20 through 22. I love the, the message translation. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments, no name, no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of what? it all. He has the final word on it. When we say in Jesus name, that's not some little motto. We're saying all the power be brought to bear on it. My cancer is not in charge. Jesus is. The economy is not in charge. Jesus is. My grumpy neighbor is not in charge. Jesus is. Jesus say the word and it will change but even if you don't, I'm going to trust you. Would you bow your heads? Father, forgive me for my, uh, my getting a little frantic today before I brought this message. I let other things get my focus off of you. I know the strategy of the devil. I was preaching on the strategy of the devil and I fell for it. Hook, line, and sinker. Make us aware that your power is greater than anything. And deliver us from the evil one, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.